Now, do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo Boo, hello to Scooby Doo, Barney and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? Um, so we we took my cat Gulliver to the vet for the first time, and I should preface this with the fact that when we got him, he was already big, already big unit. Hence the name Gulliver. Like he's large in size, but also in mass. And so I, we put him in his box, which he fucking hated. He hated going back in the box. Um, and I was feeling really bad about it because I thought, oh God, what is he like? Does he think we're going to give him up? So I, I take him up and because of Corona, obviously you can't go inside the vet with your animal. You have to leave them outside and they come and collect them. So I put him out the front. This receptionist comes and picks him up and she goes, oh, he's heavy. I was like, please don't fat shit my cat. <laughs> then I'm on this call to the vet and she says, well, your cat's obese. Like, oh, okay. So now this big boy needs to lose some weight. I don't know. He like doesn't eat heaps of food and he's not particularly food motivated. He's just fat. I don't know what his last owners did to him, but he needs to exercise more. He's very lazy, but I'll keep you abreast of um, Gull's weight loss journey. He'll be like the biggest loser. <laughs> You're spotting him while he does like sit-ups and shit. I mean, it wouldn't fucking hurt. <laughs> All he does is like sit around. You should teach him how to kickbox. <laughs> well, I was like when I got him, I thought, oh, well, maybe we'll leash train him so we can take him on walks. Absolutely fucking will not happen. Like, other cats, if they want to go outside, if they're inside cats, they'll run to the door. Gull sees the door open and is like, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I don't I don't vibe with this. Just not cool. Not about it. I wish I had that problem. My dog, it's like, it's a multi-person effort every time you open the front door to make sure she doesn't escape because she wants out. We've had to train her to understand the word window, so she'll go look out the window instead of trying to get out the door. And Lulu just walks in, <laughs> into glass. We have a sliding glass door. She doesn't even... That's why you have. we have to keep the screen closed if the sliding glass door is closed, because she will just run right into it at full speed. She's a moron. I mean, I've done that too, so... <laughs> <laughs> you and Lulu. You and, you, you're you going from one direction. Lulu's going from the other direction. The two of you just slam into the glass. I wish I was joking. I wish that wasn't a true thing about my life, but it is, so... I think the audience knows because of how many times you've fucking fallen over in the duration of this podcast. Just, <laughs> yeah. um, you live yeah. your life. <laughs> I've never broken a bone, though. Maybe you don't have bones. <laughs> she just made a pool noodle. It would explain a lot. It would explain <laughs> very much. Well, you know, unfortunately, who has too many bones? It's Jack Carson. Jack Carson. <laughs> He's like a bone in ham. Got a big old bone in the middle of that ham. And you go, and it's Christmas morning, and you get the ham, and it's all glazed, and it's sh- sugary. I don't eat ham, but, you know, imagine you're eating the ham. And uh, it's 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 dripping off the bone or whatever happens when you eat a ham. And uh, But it's Jack Carson. And he's looking up at you, and he's doing 
a horrible, vaguely racist, tropical musical number. And that's what happens in Romance on the High Seas, 1948. I think we should get out the gate. Oh, should we introduce the podcast first? Or should we make it clear that this is not a safe zone? This is not a safe space for anyone who doesn't want to see Jack Carson drawn and quartered in a public square. You've been warned. You've been warned. <laughs> Listener discretion advised. <laughs> After all these weeks, you think he'd give her a pinch or a pat? On the shoulder, I mean. You sound disappointed that he hasn't. I think I'll see what else is happening. Wait, wait, wait a minute. You know, it's very irritating. Here I give up a perfectly wonderful cruise to trap my husband, and what happens? Nothing. That goes to show you can trust men. And that, that, that girl is having a perfectly wonderful time under my name. I haven't heard a thing from her in days. Who knows what's going on down there? Just goes to show you can't trust women either. Hey, welcome to What's in the Basket. I'm Tiff, and I'm joined by Amelia. Hey. And Candace. Hello. And today we are talking about a movie featuring a man who we don't like uh, and a woman who we do like and a lot of other people. And that is 1948, the Warner Brothers musical romance on the high seas and what a romance it was there's a lot of romance in this movie and it's all bad it's all bad i honestly did doris day have a single man in her life that was worth the time of day absolutely not maybe rock hudson i just she deserved better her entire life this movie makes me understand the Hayes code because <laughs> i don't think you know like you can't both be in the room with the bedroom without somebody's foot on the floor kind of a deal no kitty I I don't think Jack Carson should be allowed on screen. I don't think Jack Carson should be allowed in rooms. <laughs> I don't think Jack Carson should be allowed to live. So I'm not going to go so far as to say that I understand eugenics, but <laughs> you told me. Uh, it's not eugenics. It's I, like it's the just... baby Hitler thing. It's like if you told <laughs> me that I could stop Jack Carson from ever becoming a, a movie star. I mean, quote, I'm using the term loosely. I would do that. I don't even care what the trade-off would be. We're already hurtling towards the apocalypse, so who cares? Well, the worst part is that he was allowed to be a romantic lead, and that's a war crime, in my opinion. Absolutely. It just, it should not have happened. I mean, look at, and it's also so improbable. Now, I don't, what happens in the Strawberry Blonde? Doesn't he end up with, does he end up with Rita Hayworth in the Strawberry Blonde? Because Cagney ends up with Olivia Yeah, Havlin. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he ends up. That's with, fucked up. I mean, it's just it's it's completely it's disgusting, and I I hate him. It just doesn't make any sense that he was allowed to be a star. Like I can understand where his character fit in the landscape of Hollywood at the time that he was a quote unquote star, but the fact that it was allowed to progress to this point where he was a leading actor, it's just, it's just unconscionable. Warner Brothers is really weak in the 40s when it comes to romantic leads. You know, you've lost the, the kind of the George Brent era of Warner's leads. Obviously, you know, you've left behind the glory days of somebody like Errol Flynn, whom, you know, personal life notwithstanding, at least is like a movie star. And you just get left with fucking assholes like Jack Carson and Reagan. And it's just like, ew, ew. I. It's, it really is a big ew. It's a horrible time. I mean, Dennis Morgan is like the only one of, of this very specific era of Warner Brothers kind of throwaway Technicolor extravaganza filmmaking, who at least I get, because Dennis Morgan at least is like a good looking guy and Dennis Morgan could act. And we like Dennis Morgan. We're fans of Dennis Morgan on this podcast. I like it when he does the Ronald Coleman impression in um, Kitty Foyle. I think that's really cool. 
<laughs> but Jack Carson can't do uh, a Ronald Coleman impression. So why is he in this movie? And the other male lead in this movie is Don DeFore, who he and Carson don't have many scenes together. And I think that's because they didn't want to stress me out by making me try to tell them apart. I mean, like, I, I know, like, it's Jack Carson because Jack Carson is like a glowing ball of hate. So I know it's Jack Carson. But when you see him in Don DeFore in those scenes where they're like, you know, well, that's my wife. I'm in love with your wife. Oh, why I ought to you? Why? I'm just like, fucking stab my eyes out. And then you understand why then you have this next generation of leading men who are going to come in something, you know, like a, like a, a Robert Mitchum. And it's like, Hollywood needed that. It was getting really stale. Uh, this Dan Daly era song and dance man movie star is just so bad. And Warner Brothers musicals after the prime Busby Berkeley era are so bad. Like, they're just not good. They're only a touch above Fox musicals. My thought upon seeing Dan DeFore, or Don DeFore in this, sorry, you said Dan Daly and I was uh, had Dan on the mind. But uh, my thought upon seeing Don DeFore in this was that he, you know, when you were a kid and you would take the head off a Barbie doll and when you put it back on, it never looked the same. <laughs> he looks like if you did that to Ray Milland. That's what he looks like to Whoa, me. Whoa, okay. I see it. Right, yeah. yeah. I see it. It's not Honestly, good. seeing no. Don DeFore and Jack Carson in the same shot in this movie was like looking at a really sad Bay Marie in like the Sizzlers or you can eat buffet. <laughs> and it's like just steamed ham, steamed ham next to each other. I don't want either of them, but there's nothing else to look at. When the only interesting male character in this is Oscar Levant, it's like there's a problem. You know, talk about somebody who I love a good one note performance. And for me, I have no problem with, with Oscar. If any movie and he, he could waltz into like, you know, one of those Betty Davis tearjerkers where it's like somebody dies of tuberculosis and then somebody gets hit by a bus or whatever, you know, and then Betty Davis is there and she's doing the whole Betty Davis thing and she's got like a lace handkerchief. And then he could waltz into the room like smoking and make some crack about somebody's, you know, fat wife and then leave and I'd be like, that's good. That's good entertainment. <laughs> Ask her, if you really love me, you'll pretend not to know me. Listen, I didn't come all this way and spend all your money to pretend I don't know you. I mean, he's good. All of his lines in this are very... They're the best lines in the movie Well, they this, this movie benefits from having... Uh, there's a, a credit for IAL Diamond, additional dialogue by. And you can tell which dialogue yeah. Diamond wrote and which what he, he didn't because it's it's Diamond, you know. So he definitely wrote the Levant stuff. And um, Janice Page has some good lines. Um, there's a, there's a, like a little bit of good back and forth in this movie but not much so i think a good introduction to this movie um and how like unself-aware it is while at the same time being very self-aware is the fact that jack carson has a line about how he invented a method of clearing audiences out of theaters and it's like he did it was being jack carson uh, tell me mr virgil hmm. what business are you in i stick my nose in other people's business uh, you know how it is when a man's retired 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 from what I, uh, I made my fortune in the entertainment business. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I invented a new system for clearing audiences out of theaters. <laughs> What's the worst Jack Carson performance? What's the most aggravating Jack Carson performance? That's like Sophie's Choice. They're all bad. Every time he's in a movie, I try my best to, like, erase that part of the movie. I think a good I example... Mean... Arsenic and Old Lace, I think, is a good one because he's playing a completely different tone than everyone else in the movie. And not in a good Oscar Levant way. It doesn't work. <laughs> It's terrible in that movie. Uh, I feel like I really hate him in Love Crazy with William Powell and Menaloy. I definitely fucking hate him just popping up randomly in, like, Vivacious Lady and Carefree because it's just, like, it immediately breaks the, like, illusion for me. I'm like, ew, why is he here? Oh, what about Mildred Pierce? Oh, that's a good example. You know, he shouldn't be there. 
<laughs> he shouldn't My, be in movies. He shouldn't be in movies. He really shouldn't. And this that's this movie's greatest sin. he was sin. in so many. <laughs> yeah, he was in so many. Well, I mean, oftentimes in Hollywood, it comes down to, do you show up on time? Are you drunk? Do you, you know? Do you have the biggest head? Do you have the biggest head? Well, he did. Fucking <laughs> he steamed did. Hams. That was this one thing to his credit. Albany steamed hams. He's horrible and I hate him. And oh, my note, literally, my third note for this podcast is ham-faced asshole. So now I can <laughs> put a line through that one because it's been addressed. <laughs> so what happens in this movie? What happens in Romance on the High Seas, 1948? Um, okay. Well, we open at a wedding where Janice Page is wearing an absolutely insane wedding gown that was like almost medieval. It's like she's got this weird headpiece. Uh, she's being walked down the aisle by S-Z-Z Cuddles Sakal who is doing what he always does. And she's getting married to Don DeFore. And we can tell from the jump that they're both extremely jealous. They're like, he smiles at a bridesmaid. She smiles at a guy in the, in the uh, I was going to say crowd. I guess it's in, what is it, at a wedding? Uh, the an audience. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, the audience. <laughs> the guests. The guests. There we go. Uh, so they're, you know, they're... <laughs> the prisoners. Basically, you know, yeah. Whatever. Yeah, I don't want to be there either. Um, yeah, so you can tell from the jump that these two should not be getting married. They are extremely jealous. And we cut to basically a little montage of her writing in this weird diary thing she has about how he's... It's so strange. It's just like yeah. anniversary number one. Does she only write in her diary on that anniversary? Is that like... That appears to be the case, yeah. What else is there to report about being married to Don DeFore? <laughs> That's true. True. Like, like, very true. He didn't, he didn't make me nut. October 28th. <laughs> we so tried to... again March 3rd. Same thing. Ditto. It's <laughs> all so just see previous entry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so two anniversaries in a row, uh, Don DeFore like, flakes out on their big trips that they've got planned, which she records in her, her weird no-nut diary. And then we cut to their third anniversary where she's planning a trip to South America. And once again, he's going to flake out. And uh, that's where the big and the, wacky... And the, the premise for this is that he's like, he's a really busy CEO of what, Miracle Pharmaceuticals? Or Miracle is Drug Company is what's written yeah, on the side of the building. Yeah, they sell like hot water bottles and aspirin. And at one point he chases um, a bunch of, I don't know, art directors out of his office who are carrying like little like sample bottles of perfume. And at one point when he has his sexy secretary, he's like, what perfume is that? We don't sell that one. And she's like, it's called tonight or never. And then Janice Page is like, a wooga, a wooga. <laughs> I think Sakal implies like he's the, the big boss guy uh, who founded the company. And I think he suggests that it's like a drugstore chain. Yeah. And so it's nepotism. That Jack Carson, yes. Jack Carson, Don DeFore, <laughs> fucking Christ. It's nepotism that Don DeFore even has this this job in the first place. And he should be nicer to his wife and take her on vacation. Also, they both refer to our buddy Cuddles as uncle, which is weird. They're cousins. They're cousins. That's why they didn't consummate the marriage. That's why we should we should point out that uh, Sakol's name in this is Laszlo Laszlo. Yeah. Uncle Laszlo Laszlo. Hello. 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 Hi. Miss Garrett, I'm Elvira Kent, and this is my uncle, Laszlo Laszlo. Hello. Sophie isn't your uncle. Is that my business? <laughs> you can believe me. She's my niece. I have experiences in nieces. Won't you sit down? <laughs> Don't be surprised if I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's cute. <laughs> they, just, they just did that to him. 
But yeah, so she's once again foiled in going on a cruise, which is, you know, one, why on God's earth would you want to go on a cruise at any point in time? But she has it in her head that perhaps he's being unfaithful. They both believe the other is being unfaithful because Don DeFall looks out his window and sees her talking to a man in the car. It's like a car salesman, but like it looks a bit suspicious. And then when she comes up to see him, he's got a new secretary who can only type as your parents would type on their phones, (laughs) one finger at a time. Um, And so they're both like, hmm, what's this person What's my partner doing? Are they they cheating on me? And it's like, just get a divorce. But Janice Page then decides that she's going to go on her own. Is that what she decides? Or that she's going to stage some elaborate entrapment scenario? Yeah, she has this big plot to tell him that she's going on her own, stay in town, I guess, like, lurk around behind bushes and shit to catch him in the act. And then send someone else in her place on the cruise. And that someone else turns out to be Doris Day, who she meets in the travel agency, who, like, comes into the travel agency to get brochures for places she can't afford to go, I guess, is, like, her hobby. Uh Uh-oh, here she is again. You take care of her, Dudley. In a nice way. I got stuck last time. Quite a character. Comes in here every few months. Loads up on literature, plans elaborate tours. Never goes on one of them. Really? Why is that? Well, she's just a singer in a honky-tonk. Hasn't got a dime. Now then, I think there are some papers there for you to sign, Mrs. Kent. Oh, how do you do, Miss Garrett? Oh, greetings, chum. My, we haven't seen you, let's see now, since uh, you didn't go to Switzerland. Yeah, I got a big kick out of playing on that trip. What looks good this time of the year? How about the Canadian Rockies? Canadian Rockies? Don't you remember? I already haven't been there. I mean, what else were you going to do in 1948? I guess that's true. <laughs> yeah. They didn't have the Nintendo Switch yet. <laughs> and, I, and Candace did note that the building where the travel agent is is the Max Factor building. Yeah, I, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm almost entirely certain that it's modeled, the set is the, the flat or whatever, is modeled after uh, the Max Factor building in Hollywood because it's a very distinctive and very famous building. And that's that on that. Don DeFore's office is also a very weird set. It's like very stark gray. It's like, I the set from RoboCop. It reminded me. <laughs> what it's like. Yeah, it reminded me of both the set from RoboCop, but then also all these weird angles where, like, the factory from Joe versus the Volcano. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> the color palette's really interesting. It's got, I don't know what you'd call it. It's kind of, kind of got, like, a, a sage green, and it's got a lot of, like, charcoal gray, and um, a lot of the textures and a lot of the angles are very Mayan Art Deco. Yeah. Which is very L.A. and is, like, very much of the period. A lot of the big kind of famous buildings around the city at that point in time were Mayan Art Deco, like, different theaters and and stores and things. It's really unusual. It's very odd because a lot of the times when you see something like that in a movie, it will be almost, like, vaguely colonial, you know? If this movie were being made in, like, 1935, it would be lots of, like, rugs and, like, doilies and shit and, like, overstuffed armchairs. But it's very sleek. It's kind of odd. It's definitely one of the weirder sets I've seen recently. Yeah, it stood it's, out. It's, yeah, I think the thing is, like, the balance between the opulence of all the sets and then also the utilitarianism of all the sets is what th- sort of threw me because there's a lot of sharp angles, a lot of, like, greys. Like, even the bathroom that DeFore and Janice Page have an argument in is, like, the weirdest bathroom. Yeah, it just it's an odd 
mix and it doesn't quite get that balance right. Like it's not the same as like the sweeping high sets you'd see on a Rogers Astaire sort of musical. You know, like those are big and otherworldly and like you're not something you really see day-to-day life, but like just completely devoid like these sets are completely devoid of any of like the grandeur of those which is obviously it's post-war so it's different time but like also just feels empty Mm -hmm. it's weird yeah it's like they're not filming it on a large enough sound stage i think it's a big part of the problem Um, yeah yeah RKO was able to devote such a huge part of the studio footprint to Fred and Ginger because let's be honest by 19 you know 35 36 that's like all RKO has I mean apart from you know Hepburn who's kind of sliding her way into irrelevance by that point in time because the kind of lost favor with with audiences or whatever you know bullshit you know the whole thing but it feels like Warner Brothers is shooting this on something that's like a quarter size of what it should be so like again you don't get that visually um it reminds me a lot this particular set, but a lot of the sets in it remind me a lot of the Bullock's Wilshire department store, which again, very, 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 very famous building uh, in, in California. And it doesn't get any of the, you're right, the height is completely off. Like his office and the entryway into his office, they're all too small. Mm-hmm. They feel really oppressive. Like it's just, it's odd. I don't know what else they were filming. Maybe they're filming something that had like horses and shit. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's like taking up all the space. I don't know. They're filming some sort of biblical epic, but it's like uh, it doesn't it doesn't work. The movie feels really cramped, but kind of like I guess being on a ship though, and that's why we don't go on cruises anymore, even without the coronavirus. Um, so she enlists Doris Day's help to pose as her on the ship. Meanwhile, Don Dufour is enlisting the detective prowess of Jack Carson as like a private eye to spy on his wife on the ship to make sure she is not going behind his back. I don't understand why anyone had to get on the boat in the first place. Because this is like an era when you could buy a plane ticket in cash under a fake name and then like crash it in the Rocky Mountains. So it's not like anyone was going to be checking. Yeah, I don't like because... She could have just said she was going on the cruise, stayed back as she said she would do, not gone on the cruise. She doesn't know that Jack Carson's going on the cruise, so as far as she knows, no one knows that she's not on the cruise. So I don't know why Doris had to... (laughs) I mean, Dawn DeFore can't even, like, straighten out, like, what hotel room she's in at the end of the movie. I mean, he clearly does not have the acumen to be able to contact her on this cruise. He would just send her telegrams and she's, what, fucking wouldn't answer? Thereby confirming his his suspicions that she's, you know, off, you know, slutting it up. (laughs) like it's fine who gives a shit who cares actually that's a better trap because then he'd be all distracted by that and then he would retaliate and probably you know i don't know it's dumb it's a terrible plot yeah we can see that iel diamond didn't contribute that part now of the plot he just came and Um, looked at the, the script and went this is shit and then wrote in some zingers so anyway disbelief suspended um doris gets on the boat they're all set up ready to go she leaves um oscar levant who plays in the band at, you know, whatever nightclub Doris is seeing at. Which Janice Page describes, I believe, as a honky No, the guy at the at the travel agency describes it as a honky-tonk that Doris yeah. works yeah, at. Yeah, and then we, we see it, and it's not particularly a honky-tonk. Um, yeah. It's not bad. It's just kind of like a... And there's a particularly, like, a communist waiter that, <laughs> that works there <laughs> who hates rich people and says that when um, Janice Page and Sokol come in, all dressed up in their, you know, finery, he's like, oh, you're too, you can't be dressed up to come in here. But then when he tells them that, when he tells Doris that they're waiting for her, he says, you know, they look like they don't pay any income tax. So 
is a comrade. <laughs> hey, Georgia, a couple of income tax evaders. Why'd you have a drink with them? Table seven. Um, and, you know, Oscar Levan is like, it's played off like he's in love with Doris, but it feels like it's a big joke the entire time. Yeah, he repeatedly asks her to marry him. She repeatedly says, I don't love you. And he just keeps going and he never seems terribly hurt by it. I always wanted to marry a girl with a tuna piano on the side. Once and for all, will you marry me? Answer, yes or no? No. We'll continue this discussion later. I, I just get the feeling that Oscar really doesn't care about anything. Um, which is true for his personal life too. Um, and then, yeah, we're on the boat. The mix-up happens. Jack Carson thinks that Doris Day is his mark. And it's at this point, Doris Day, she's like pretending to be Elvira Kent and affects this kind of high society accent. Uh, my dear young lady. Yes? I advise you to go to your cabin and get out of your clothes at once. I beg your pardon? Oh, don't go in there. You'll be frightfully embarrassed. Embarrassed? Why? Well, nobody dresses the first night out. They don't? Even if it's chilly, this I gotta see. I mean, fair enough. It was her first film role. What is she gonna? Yeah, she's not gonna be incredible right off the bat. But I mean, she's incredible in the way that she is Doris Day, and you know that's the only strength of this movie. I'd say is like seeing Doris Day like this. Even though they do her very dirty, like the fact that her first big screen musical number ever is fucking that I'm in love song is so unfair. It's so bad. <laughs> I know. And that's the first thing I'm Doris Day love, ever sang in a movie. I'm in love. 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 I'm in love with you. What was the name of that song? I'm in love. Oh, it's awful. I mean, Doris has had to sing a lot of bad songs in her career, which is frankly incredible to think about because she has such a wonderful voice. She has such a wonderful affectation and the way that she sings is really um, immersive. Uh, And then to see that like 80% of the songs she had to sing in movies were utter shit uh, it's very frustrating. What are you implying about Roly Poly? <laughs> I never said which percent the Roly Poly song sat in. <laughs> Is it know. in the 20% that were good? Is it in the 80% that were bad? That's not for me to say. But yeah, that's not the only bad song she has to sing in this movie. Oh, God, no. <laughs> But anyway, then then what happens is they have their first night on the boat. And, I mean, I've never been on a cruise before because I'm a person who values their life. And apparently dressing up on the first night to go to dinner is a faux pas. Who would have known? So Doris shows up. She's in this beautiful, like, ice blue gown and has this little cape over the oh, shoulder. Kicks ass. Um, it's one of the best costumes in this in this movie because there's a lot of decisions that have been made about costumes in this movie that it's like either this person who designed these costumes had a split personality (laughs) disorder or (laughs) there was more than one person making these costumes and one of those people hated Doris Day. Um, well, like specifically the sink, the the out, the get up that she wears during the "I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love" number. It's like it's got this really beautiful bodice, right, and like the long sleeves, and then it just ends, and then it's like kind of like a black like floor length skirt that doesn't match anything because there's no black anywhere else in the outfit and um it's terrible it looks like the real skirt ripped like 10 seconds before they were supposed to start shooting and then like they just like nobody cared enough you know 
She looks Amish. A lot of strange waistlines in this movie. Like, I understand that the drop waist was fashionable at the time. It's like fitted drop waist. But, like, it's almost like someone had a vendetta specifically against Doris. Because, because Janice's Janice costumes Page are cool. Is, are fine. They look fine. It's just Doris who has to, like, have these weird sort of bodices that, like, come in really tight on the waist and the hips. And then, like, she'll have a skirt on underneath or there'll be, like, some kind of embellishment sort of just underneath her ass. It's a weird silhouette. One of the worst ones is, um, and Janice has these two. Janice's are brown and Doris's are blue. And they're like opera gloves, but they're not form-fitting like opera gloves. They kind of look like something you would wear like while welding. And you remember those. It's like, and the like leg warmers. Huge. Like leg warmers. Yeah, it's, and like the hands. They have hands. You wouldn't be able to do anything. You wouldn't be able to pick up a fork. You wouldn't be able to like use a pen because it's like all of a sudden you got these meaty ass like fingers. They're bizarre. I've never seen anything like that before in my life. And it looks like somebody literally did not finish the gloves in time. And it was like, we don't need those tailored. Just check them on. Hulk hats with all the thunderous sounds of the Hulk built in. I've got the power of the Hulk in my hands. And I like it. Hulk hat with real Hulk sounds. Is there a Hulk in you? From what I'm seeing, IMDb doesn't have a costume designer listed at all. So maybe they were ashamed. Maybe it was like an Alex yeah, movie thing, but for it, costume designers. It has, I don't know if he's uncredited on this. Milo Anderson allegedly did this, which I don't think sounds right because Milo Anderson's costumes normally don't look like shit. So I don't know if he showed up drunk. I don't know if he was on leave. I don't know. But a lot of times, you know, they'll... It's like rubber stamping stuff, you know, kind of rubber stamping everything with Cedric Gibbons' signature, you know. So Cedric Gibbons is, is, you know, obviously credited with all the interiors and sets from, you know, every MGM production. He didn't work on every single MGM production. You know, he might sign off on stuff. But I don't know. Miley Anderson's gowns in particular normally don't look this shit because he did a lot of interesting costuming for women. I don't know. But I don't know. Maybe he had maybe he had coronavirus. I don't know. <laughs> maybe he just hated Doris, you know? Maybe he just hated Doris. Because he also did Young Man with a Horn, and Doris looks fine in Young Man with a Horn. So I don't think he's the person with the grudge. I think someone else who worked in the Warner's costuming department had a grudge against Doris and then blamed it on poor Milo Anderson. <laughs> An innocent victim. Well, yeah, she turns up first night in this beautiful blue gown, and then Jack Carson is there is like, oh, well, you shouldn't be wearing your finest for the first night. No one wears, you know, no one gets dressed up for the first night. And he's there in his tuxedo. And then they, like, I don't know, I don't see it, but, like, apparently there's some kind of connection between the two. And um, they agree to have dinner together, and then they go into the dining room, and the guy's like, oh, dinner's finished. And it's like, I don't think that could happen on a boat. <laughs> I feel like you should be able to eat anytime you want on a boat if you're paying this much money. That's exactly what I said when we were watching it. It's bullshit. It's just like, and then they have to go to the bar and eat pretzels. Like a bucket of pretzels. Like a bucket of pretzels. I'm like, one, you would not be able to talk if you were eating that many fucking pretzels because your mouth would be too full of salt to be able to produce any kind of saliva to keep talking. These pretzels are making me thirsty. She didn't want to listen to Jack Carson speak. A lot of it must be like Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where it's like when you watch a movie and it's like a hard working girl, you know, and she wants, you know, Doris's whole thing is, you know, she wants to travel the world. She wants luxury. She wants adventure. You know, she wants a man. And it's like, you could have one. The rest of us don't look like Doris Day. 
<laughs> I don't think it would be that hard. <laughs> like, let's be honest here. You don't have to keep singing in the honky-tonkies. Jack Carson goes for it immediately. Like, he's there as a private eye. He's supposed to be making sure that Doris, who he thinks is Don DeFore's wife, is not cheating on Don DeFore. And he is, like, instantly trying to seduce her, which seems like bad practice. He's very unprofessional. Yeah, he, like, pretends to have this remorse later that, like, that she's she's married and my only regret is that she was your wife or whatever. But, like, from literally the first night, he's trying to get in there. Like, God, he's just, he's such an asshole yeah, in every role. I don't think that role. he has many scruples. Yeah. He's um, just always a dick. I don't think he's a very good detective either. Because, like, if he was a good detective, he would have noticed that Doris has two very distinct ways of speaking and been like, hmm, that's a bit weird. Also, you wouldn't, like, ask, like, oh, this woman I'm tailing, what does she look like? Yes. Yeah. Can I have a picture of her? A picture <laughs> of her? What's her hair color? <laughs> like, <laughs> any any information? But they didn't have Yelp back then, so I don't know how you really hired private investigators. Maybe Don DeFore, because, you know, because Jack Carson, when they have that shot of his office, he's got, like, the window, the painted sign on the window that says, like, you know, private eye or whatever. Is Don DeFore just walking down the street, like, looking at windows, trying to find, you know, like, the way you would look for, like, a dry cleaner? Is that what happened <laughs> there? Is that how you used to hire private eyes? Is this a point where we can also talk about the joke uh, before the cruise starts when DeFore is hiring Jack Carson and Jack Carson is like getting these phone calls from the husbands of women who were cheating and he's hearing someone like fainting and then with the next one it's a fucking gunshot. Oh, excuse me. Hello? What do you know? He didn't even wait for me to tell him. Yeah, he's like he's like usually it's either you hear them faint or you hear a shot. And, like, after he tells them that their, you know, wife's been unfaithful. And then, like, the next one that calls, it's just immediately shut. He's like, I didn't even have to say anything that time. And it's like, is, are they... Yeah. Like, is it a domestic violence joke or a suicide joke? Because either way, it's pretty bad. It's not good. <laughs> it's absolutely not good. And also, like, Jack Carson is very unconcerned. Yeah. Because he's an asshole. I was going to say, it's like those old, those old um, fan mag and trade paper ads for, like, Love Before Breakfast with Lumbar, Carol Lumbar, with the big The shiner, big black eye, you know? yeah. With the big black eye. And it's like, isn't it hilarious? It's like, I don't want to see a woman with a black eye. That's not funny to me. But maybe people were just... Look, I think if you're voluntarily spending money on a Jack Carson movie, I don't think you have control of your life in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> you already make poor decisions. So you maybe you're not offended by that. Yeah, that was weird. That just sort of... And it just sort of... The scene ends, and it's like, okay, we're not going to address how weird that was. Okay. Yeah, it's very unsettling. But I guess, I mean, that's the entire tone of the movie whenever Jack Carson is on screen. That's true. Anyway, so as the cruise kind of progresses, Doris and Jack Carson get, I guess, closer and closer, and they the first stop on this cruise is... Havana, and there's a, a great musical number where is it Avon Long? Yeah. Sings about how much they hate Americans, but they love their money uh, in this tourist trap. Havana! That's Havana. They murder the language, but we love them. We want more of them. The Yankee dollar ain't hey. Hey, hey! It's an interesting interpretation of what Cuba was like uh, before Cuba became the enemy to the United States. Uh, and then it's at this point, is this where they like call back to New York and they're both like Jack calls 
Defoe and is you know you know checking in and Doris calls Elvira um, Janice Page and you know they're both checking in and then when Doris comes out she's like oh I was just talking to my husband and Jack Carson is like what what and he's like am I going crazy how could you have just been talking to your husband and then just n- does not question yeah he it just further. moves on <laughs> he's like okay he's just like okay whatever <laughs> um. <laughs> And I think it's at this point that Oscar Levant makes his reappearance and rushes to be on the boat. Yeah, he flies down to Cuba to meet the boat. Which, you know, I can't imagine anything worse. (laughs) Flying on a plane and then immediately getting on a boat. And seeing Jack Carson. It's just, it's a a big ask. Also, how badly would he have smelled? Who, Jack Carson? (laughs) Uh, Oscar Levant, I was going to (laughs) say. Because, like, I, even after one plane trip, like, if it's a 13-hour plane trip, uh, you smell bad. There's just no getting around that. I feel like Oscar Levant probably smoked so much that you just didn't smell anything else. True, true. He probably couldn't smell anything else. He smoked <laughs> so much. Um, I will say that the only saving grace of this movie is that uh, the entire time both Oscar Levant and Jack Carson are in suits, whereas all the men on the boat behind them in shots wearing short shorts and polo (laughs) shirts the entire time i'm very glad that they were not put in short shorts because like jack carson has a very strange build he has like a goon build like um (laughs) you know mafia heavy build so it's like kind of like donkey kong um and (laughs) just like seeing that in short shorts and a polo shirt would be quite Deeply disturbing. That's just my two cents. Well, you're right, and you should say it. <laughs> they were trying. They they had to make that change because otherwise, a they would have been reprimanded by the Hayes office for showing too much titty, and b they had to make sure <laughs> that people didn't demand a refund when they went to go see it in the theater. <laughs> there is so much saggy man flesh in the 1940s in movies. We've we've talked about this. I mean, like there's that whole gag. Even Family Guy has that gag. You know, where it's like Robert Mitchum as in shape, out of shape man from the 40s. You know, like how no one, <laughs> everyone looks like shit all the time, and everyone has really flabby pecs. And I'm like, I don't know what was going on, but it's not even like flabby pecs. It's just like pecs that don't meet in the middle. It's weird. It's like, what is the generational like flaw here? Like, what did they always skip? Do you, is there a chest day? Did they skip chest day? If if chest day is a thing, I don't exercise. Um, <laughs> this is at the heart of um, of um, Dana's shame, is what it is. Exactly, it's Dana just... didn't do enough. He didn't. He didn't do that. Maybe Jack Carson has one. Well, Jack Carson didn't. What didn't wasn't in World War Two, right? So no, he wasn't directly responsible for World War Two. Really. <laughs> no, I said, was Jack Carson wasn't in in World War Two? Was he? I meant like he didn't fight. So what was wrong with him? I don't think so. I don't think so because he was fucking working the entire time. Yeah. So let's see. Well, apparently he went to military school, so he should have had to go. And he was six foot two and two hundred twenty pounds. How did this stupid bitch not have to go to war? Hold on. Ugh, they mentioned a role he... I'm on Wikipedia. He has a mock-drunk undercover G-man opposite Richard Cromwell in Universal's anti-Nazi action drama entitled... Auction drama? Entitled action drama entitled <laughs> Enemy Agent. And I'm like, poor Richard Cromwell. And the fact that Doris liked him, everything about this is horrible. But I'm not seeing any indication on his page of how he somehow evaded the draft. Maybe they just saw him and were like, hmm, all you're good for is tossing barrels. We don't need that in the army. (laughs) 
Can we also, like, address the fact that Doris had such horrible taste in men, like, in her personal she life? She did. It's it's like Hedy Lamar. Yeah. Or Myrna Loy. Myrna Loy was married and divorced four times. It's like, why do beautiful women, beautiful, talented, successful women... too. Yeah. Absolutely the worst taste. And Doris literally always got involved with deadbeats. Look at how, I mean, she ended up having to do the Doris Day show in the 70s, which she didn't want to do, but that was because, was it Melcher who had left her in all that debt, you know, because he fucking leveraged all of her assets and shit. It's just like fucking stupid assholes. (sighs) Yeah. There's so many of those. Oh, well. They're everywhere. Next week, we'll come at you with another one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was going to say, there's a good bit, though, at this point in the movie, because uh, it, I mean, it's just like a stupid throwaway line. But Doris is like, listen, Oscar, why don't you go home? And Oscar just goes, I can't swim. And then he puts it <laughs> and I thought yeah. it was really funny. It tickled me. I think it was because it reminded me of Go Home, Roger. Oh, please, why don't you go home? I can't swim. Go home, Roger! <laughs> he has a lot of good lines. I like the, you know, it's like, if I lose you, I lose 100% of my friends. You know, um, there's a lot of good lines. There's also a little giveaway to the audience. I guess in order to apologize to us for having to look at Jack Carson and Don DeFore, we get kind of like a mod squad of great 30s character actors doing like really brief one-line appearances. So you got Grady Sutton and Franklin Pangborn. They both look like shit. Grady Sutton looks very rough. And Franklin Pangborn looks very weary and very sweaty. And Eric Bloor. And Eric Bloor's bit is largely irrelevant. It's a good Eric Bloor moment, though. But uh, Grady Sutton's got a line where Jack Carson sends off a telegram to Don DeFore that's like, there are now two men in the picture. And Grady Sutton reads it. He's like, you'll have to let me know how that one turns out. Another radiogram to be sent at once. Send that one collect, too. You'll let me know how it comes out, won't you? And then uh, when, later on in the movie, spoiler alert, but when DeFore goes into what he thinks is Janice Page's hotel room and Doris is in there and he goes back to the front desk and he talks to Franklin Pangborn, who's playing the clerk, and he's like, there's a strange girl in Mrs. Kent's room. And then Pangborn goes like, Maria was getting more like Paris every day. (laughs) Say, you gave me the wrong room number. My wife isn't in 314. I'm sorry, but she is, Mr. Kent. But there's a strange girl up there. You'd better look it up again. 314 is correct, Mr. Kent. <laughs> Rio is getting more like Paris every day. <clears throat> <laughs> I love Franklin Pangborn. Anyway, it was fun. It's like, if I'm watching a studio movie, I want to see studio stable actors. I don't want to see Don DeFore. Yeah, seeing Eric Bloor was like, I mean, he didn't look good. He was doing his Eric Bloor thing. Which, it was weird because it was so short. You used to seeing him for much longer stretches of a movie. I mean, it's definitely long enough for him to be in it. But, like, I mean, there's not enough, I guess, comic relief in that kind of studio sense. Like, Oscar Levan is obviously comic relief, but it's sort of a higher level comic relief. Whereas, like, you need sort of a dumber level of yeah. comic relief. If you're going to have a plot that is this ludicrous... And is this, you know, far-fetched? You need to have something a bit funnier going on the entire time. And, like, I guess we'll get into it later. But, like, obviously all the mis- misunderstandings happening with Jack Carson seeing Oscar Levant because Doris pretends that she's ill because she doesn't want to have to deal with both Jack Carson and Oscar Levant being on the boat at the same time and dealing with that situation. You know, we've all been in that situation where we're just like, peace out. I don't want to deal with this situation that I've 
I'm solely responsible for causing. And um, it's then when Eric Bloor comes in as a doctor and he is, in fact, unwell when Doris is fine. Then Oscar Levant comes in and Doris collapses into her arm because Eric Bloor doses her with something, injects her with something. It's not explained what it is. It's just a shot. My diagnosis was correct. What do you recommend, Doctor? A sea voyage. A sea voyage? Oh, but then, of course, we're on one, aren't we, right now? I'm so sorry. How silly of me. I'll give you an injection and put you to sleep. That shouldn't do you any harm. Will it hurt, Doctor? Well, it shouldn't, but I'm uh, a bit clumsy, you know? Uh, and then she gets really sleepy and collapses in his arms, all the while while Jack Carson is watching and is immediately thinks, oh, my God, she's cheating with another man. And he thinks she's fucking married in the first place. He already thinks she's married. That's the whole point. And he's been seducing her the entire time. Yeah. It's just, it's it's fucked up. Oh, and another thing. Sakal even has, like, very little dialogue and very little screen time. And, and very little to do. Yeah, he should be on the ship. Exactly. He should be there with Doris. Yes, he should be Doris's you know, sidekick. To, like, what's he doing at, back in New York? Nothing. There should be, like, a really good, like, a like a montage, like, one of those, like, you know, like, outfit montages, you know? Where Doris is, like, spinning around in her outfit, and then he's, like, and then he's, like, shaking his head, you know? And then she spins around again, and he's, like, maybe... What, set to, like, walking like, on yeah. sunshine? Yeah. Like... like, Lindsay Lohan and Tyra Banks in Life Size, specifically, is what I was thinking of. They should have done that. They gave him a couple of good moments. I like how he keeps talking about when he was a soda jerk, his boss would punch him in the face if he made a mistake. When I started in this business, nobody was helping me. No. I was a soda jerker. <laughs> I was such a thin boy. My boss was such a guy. One mistake, I got a punch in the nose. But yeah, he just should have been doing more. I don't know what else he was like. He was just in New York. Like, was he just doing his job? What is what is his job? Here we go. Here's why we have such ill feelings towards Dundervoir. His friend, former actor and 40th president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, appointed uh, him to the Presidential Advisory Council to the Peace Corps. That's why we get the negative feeling. We could smell it. It's just like a Reagan malevolence. So Carson thinks she's cheating on him. Twice. When he already thought she was cheating on her husband, yeah. Cheating warmed over twice. Double long California cheating. And, uh... <laughs> I guess then that's when we get, they have a, a falling out and then Doris like recounts the entire thing in this flashback to scenes that happened like between 30 and five minutes ago. Which is very helpful um, if you have someone on your podcast who sundowns like Candace. <laughs> Shut um, fuck up. <laughs> I'm tired. I mean, I don't even it's... know how helpful it is because I just watched this movie and I was helpfully shown the plot twice and I still don't really know what happened. <laughs> Well, because they know that you got you were bored and you got up, you know, to go to the bathroom and you got up to smoke and you got up to, I don't know, go buy more Cracker Jacks or whatever the fuck people did in the 1940s. And you weren't fucking paying attention. You don't know what's going on. You don't care. You're getting a handy in the background. You're not fully engaged in this Jack Carson centric narrative. I mean, you got to go to the lobby sometime. Yeah, I don't really remember where it goes from there. My next note chronologically is the as stated vaguely racist uh Jack Carson Calypso number accompanied by Sir Lancelot from I Walked with a Zombie. Maybe sing your song, sir. A lot about a good woman, there's no such thing. Run when you see a pretty woman. Ah, but when you sing Calypso, you don't say when you see a pretty woman. When you see a pretty woman. One, you see a pretty woman? That's right. 
You sing, we'll follow you. What can I lose that I haven't already lost? Run, 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 when you see a pretty woman. Run, 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 when you see a pretty woman. Love is the common enemy. The moon and the stars are the artillery. When they attack, you'll find there's no retreat. You will lose your heart unless you use your feet. Oh, run, 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 when you see a pretty woman. Run, 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 when you see a pretty woman. He's just like, he's talk singing and he's enunciating every single letter in the words that he's singing. And it's like, it's because he's seen Oscar Levant and Doris being all close and he's all sore about it. And so he's going to like confront Oscar, even though he's never seen his face. He then goes to the bar with the view of meeting Doris. And then Oscar goes to the bar with the view of meeting Doris and they both send her notes. And she's like, fuck this. I am not doing this. And (laughs) they proceed to get fake drunk on no alcohol in this bar. And they're like, tell me about your girl. And they're talking about the same girl. But they're like, our girls would be friends, you know. And then, I don't know, they become friends. Which I just absolutely do not see Oscar Levant being Jack Carson's friend. Yeah, and there's that... The fake drunk thing is weird. There's that gag where this actual, like, drunk guy at the bar is going back and forth, like, draining their glasses before they actually have any. And I, I didn't really know what was going on there, to be honest. Well, they, and they they keep, like, going to take a drink after he's drunk all the booze out of them and then being like, oh, I'll have another, make it a triple this time. And it's and then they get drunker. Is it just, like, sympathetic drunker, drunkness? Like, what it's like, it's, is happening? It's like on Bob's Burgers when all the kids think they're getting drunk on margarita mix and they're like, oh, I'm feeling <laughs> You guys want to play Truth or Dare? Great, good. I dare us all to drink this. Margarita mix! The heavy stuff! Cool. That's my mom's. I know. I took a little booth cruise through your living room. Does margarita mix have alcohol in it? No. Mom uses it to fill the hummingbird feeder. Oh my god, I totally feel it. Oh my god, yeah, it's peer pressure. Oscar Levant is being peer pressured by Jack Carson, who's being peer pressured by Oscar Levant. It's a vicious cycle. Circle of life. Circle of life. I just, yeah, but I stab. I don't think Oscar Levant would have been friends with Jack no. Carson. I feel like there's no I find way it very difficult he would have hated Jack Carson. Um, Levant and Carson decide to go back to New York together because they're mad at their respective girlfriends, I guess. But then. Somehow, despite not actually being drunk, they accidentally buy plane tickets to Rio instead of New York. And then they, like, wake up on the plane and they're in Rio and they're like, what the fuck, I guess. Again, I I didn't understand it at all. They were asleep for an awful long time. How did they get through customs if they were asleep? I know airport security wasn't what I was going to say. It used to be fairly easy to hijack things. I feel like you can't be comatose and do that, though. (laughs) They weekend at Bernie's. Somebody weekend at Bernie's because that would be so funny. (laughs) Like, hey, let's put these guys on a plane. It'll be fun. It was Sir Lancelot because he wanted to fucking get rid of them. Yeah. He's like, never come back to my place again, which is fair enough. Uh, and then they, well, they go back to Rio and they're like, well, we may as well get our luggage while we're here. Because like they could book plane tickets, but couldn't get their luggage on the plane. It's here that Doris meets back up with them. And then Jack Carson realizes that Oscar is in fact talking about Doris and that that's his girl. Even though I don't know why it's not at this point that Jack Carson doesn't put two and two together because Oscar Levant, when they're getting drunk, 
tells him Doris's real name, like her character's name. Uh, and Jack Carson just does not make that connection when he like sees them together. I think we've kind of hit on a trend in this movie of Jack Carson, ostensibly a detective, not making a lot of connections. No, well, nobody said he was a good not detective. A good detective. <laughs> <laughs> Again, they didn't have Yelp. You just hired somebody to catch like your father's killer and he just took your $500 and he never came back because what are you going to do? You know, lowjack him? That's not going to happen either. He's a grifter. He's probably not even a licensed private detective. Probably. Um, his office was very small. Like every other set in this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is this? A private eye office for ants? <laughs> but yeah, it's sort of this part where the, the climax of the film kind of happens all in this one hotel in Rio. Uh, it's like at this point where Jack Carson's like, fuck this, I'm just going to do whatever I want. You know, I'm just going to pursue Doris Day. And uh, this is where it's, like, hazy. So, like, Doris is propositioned by, is it the hotel manager or, like, the band room manager or whatever to be a singer for, like, $1,000 a week or something at this hotel because she's got this, you know, society name. And he's like, "That's that'll be a draw because people in Rio de Janeiro will definitely <laughs> know who this random society woman is and will definitely come to hear her sing. And 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 Doris is like, but can't I do it under a different name? And he's like, no, there's no draw there. It's like, what draw is there to begin with? The draw would have been really good, though, if she'd been um, performing under Sackle's name and, and they were, you know, <laughs> Sackle's name and they're they advertising her as Laszlo Laszlo. Laszlo Uncle Laszlo Laszlo. I would go see that. <laughs> and... Uh, Mr. Kent, uh, Don DeFore, decides he's going to fly down to Rio. And at the same time... Is, is, he, fl- that... is he flying down to Rio? Yes. It was just a um... joke because you said fly, fly down to Rio <laughs> and flying down to Rio's movie. Yeah, I, I understood the joke. <laughs> um... I... Look, I try, okay? I'll never, get, I'll lev- never let Candace get away with anything. Um... <laughs> One day I'll surprise you take you by storm <laughs> okay well we'll have to record really early in your morning then sundowner um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's at the same time that he decides he's going to fly down to rio that um janice page decides that she because after finding no evidence of her husband cheating sackle is like well why don't you go down to rio and surprise him there or not surprising that he meets up with you and then you have half a cruise together and it'll be all great. And it's like, you haven't had one good plan this entire time, Sackle. Shut up. But she flies down and for some reason, Don DeFore is on a plane that is faster and he gets there first. And that leaves Sackle in like a bit of a tiz because he's got to like try and defuse the situation, which obviously he can't do. He's not equipped to do and he doesn't do. And this leads to everything sort of coming to a head with Don DeFore getting very confused about hotel rooms. He walks in on Doris Day, walks in on Oscar Levant in the same bed, and he gets very confused. And then he finally walks in on Janice Page, who's, like, pretending everything's fine. Uh, And then he confronts her about running off with the detective uh, and I think it's at this point where Jack Carson is like checking out and he's like, I've, I'm done. I've had enough. I don't want to deal with this anymore because his client's back and has fired him. So he's left. Uh, good riddance to bad rubbish. Uh, and Doris Day for some reason thinks that that's bad. I don't know why. Um, but she runs after him. That bit is never, we don't ever find out what happens in that because like, obviously she doesn't catch up to him because the very next scene is like this huge musical number 
in the band room of the hotel, which has a very divisive shot to open it up, which Candace loved and I didn't love. I thought it was um, cool. I hated it. It lasted so long. <laughs> it looks like you're looking at this corner of a room with this, you know, I think it's supposed to be like carnival themed musical number going through. The walls turn around in their mirrors and then you see the rest of the room being revealed. So you see more of the crowd and all the costumes and everything. It just, it lingered and it was very annoying. Yeah, it goes to this scene and it's like headlining tonight, Miss Elvira Kent. And there's a running joke throughout the whole movie that Janice Page is a horrible singer, which is obviously a bit of tongue in cheek because obviously Janice Page was a musical star and obviously had a very good voice. But Carson decides to go, even though he said he's he was leaving. He talks to someone and they're like, why didn't you go? I thought you were going. And he's like, ah. Oh. Yeah, but I didn't. It's like, yeah, I wish you had. <laughs> um, and the band leader, he's like, okay, everybody introducing Miss Elvira Kent. And she comes out and she says, well, everyone, I was going to sing today. And I've decided that I'm going to let my friend sing instead and introduces Doris with her real character's name, George Garrett. And then she sings her number. And it's like the dress that she's wearing in this scene would be a very nice dress if it was just flattering in any way. <laughs> it's like it's got weird things on the sleeves. The drop waist, again, is just, it's not flattering. It's got like some kind of weird ribbon that sort of falls around mid-thigh that gathers it in. And it's just, it could be a really nice gown, but it's just not. And then it's like at that point where Jack Carson suddenly understands everything, he's just like, oh, so she's a completely different, not a single question. He's not like, oh, how did any of this happen then? He's just like, oh, now I know that she's a different person. It's fine. If you haven't seen the movie and you're listening to this and you're like, this is very confusing. This makes no sense. I don't know what's going on. That's what the end of this movie is like. Um, you can watch the movie. You're not going to fucking know what happened. <laughs> I don't think anyone involved knew what was happening in the end of this movie. It's like the big sleep. It's just like, we're just going to throw some things at the wall. There are no loose ends that are tied. All that happens is that Jack Carson and Doris kiss, which is, you know... Gross. Gross. And then, I don't know, are we to assume that Janice Page and Don DeFore are, like, fine now? Yeah, you see them kiss, too, at the table. They're all, yeah. But then you also see Circle, like, at a table surrounded by women, like, is he just going to have a harem now? Like, what? what is he going to do? And then Oscar Levant, what's he going to do? Because he was, like, on the piano. Is he just going to live in Rio too? Is Doris going to live in Rio too now that she's got this contract? Is, does she even have the contract? So many unanswered questions. Uncle, why are you hiding in the closet? I, I will, I will tell you. It's an awful day. such a hurly-burly in this Rio. I was... Happy to find the quiet place. So this movie, one thing we need to address is that this movie feels interminably long. The movie is 98 minutes. It feels like water torture the entire time. I think it's a phenomenal, just like every time Jack Carson is on screen, time like slows down. Every minute feels longer when he's on screen and speaking. And also just because I think you don't understand what's going on. So you're just like in a, this confused like fugue state for so long. And then when you come at the other side... You're like, boy, I wish I'd watched a different movie. But, I mean, we've taken that bullet for you. One of many issues with Jack Carson movies, and specifically these, like, Jack Carson comedies, is that they feel like they're operating on the assumption that he's so much more charming than he is, and then that's going to be oh. enough to carry it. And he's just not. He's, he's really not. One of the Warners must have really liked him. He must have reminded 
Jack Warner of like, I don't know, some friend that hopefully mercifully, you know, died a young and <laughs> death. Uh, and this is his attempt at like resurrecting it because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. As a business decision, it makes no sense. You know, you have to be objective when you're running a studio when it comes to talent. And this is not objectivity because there's no fucking way that Jack Carson warrants a number of movies he made and the big roles that he has in these movies. Like, look at something like The Time, The Place, and The Girl. The fact that Martha Vickers would even be in the same room as Jack Carson is very difficult for me to believe in the movie. Now, she did marry Mickey Rooney. Yeah, so... I was going to say. <laughs> dial that back a little bit. But then she told him that the reason why they called him the day of the Oscars and canceled on him being the host was because, like, he wasn't talented and everyone hated him or whatever. She was, like, drunk. So <laughs> it does loop back around to being right. I'm not really sure what was going on there psychologically with her. But no, it, it just... I never believe, you never believe, you never believe that Jack Carson has a legitimate shot at any of these women. It's disgusting. It's but disgusting. apparently they they did have a, Doris and Jack Carson did get together, which is the most disturbing fact of all, really. Doris hated herself. Doris had, I don't know, uh, it's, it's baffling to me. If you're going to be attracted to men, don't make a Jack Carson. <laughs> That's my advice. Life advice. <laughs> Also, one thing I love about Oscar Levant is how uh, Oscar Levant. I don't know why I said Oscar Levant, but uh, one thing I love about Oscar Levant is how dude is just lighting it up, lighting it up anywhere at any time. I mean, he walks out of Janice Page's like closet in that hotel room, and he's already got a cigarette in his mouth. Like, it's just so funny to me. And like, obviously, everybody smokes in movies in the 1940s, but there's something about really seeing a man kill himself in real time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's horrible. Perk Westmore did the makeup on this movie, which is flawless. The lip color in particular is very strong. He's got a really interesting palette. Because a lot of times when you watch Technicolor movies from this point in time, um, red lip is the default. And instead, in this movie, you see a lot of, like, a lot of peach, a lot of coral, a lot of, like, rose tones. I think Perk Westmore was one of the true geniuses of the studio era. And I also made a note that he was probably also maybe responsible for Jimmy Cagney's uh, drag brows. <laughs> you know? So... Is that an asset? Is that a, I think personally, it's a great achievement. I love those brows. Like those like fucking looking like Gloria Stewart in 1932. <laughs> those brows on Cagney are so beautiful and so majestic. And also like that smoky, that smoky eyeshadow. Cagney wore way more makeup than like I know else. Cagney was always very made up. don't talk enough about that. Cagney like always had smoky <laughs> eyes. Always. He was like the original i think it's because cagney also didn't have the fucked up issues with masculinity that a lot of other actors had like you know you hear a lot of ac other actors at the time talk about how much they hated having to put on anything resembling like pancake or anything you know any sort of highlight for for pictures and cagney is just like that bitch is out there he's got mascara on well he has to have the mascara on or else you wouldn't see his fucking eyelashes <laughs> well yeah but you can also but you can just tell because he's such a freckly person you can tell how much base he's wearing because his skin is so yeah. white and so smooth and so like matte it's like because underneath that you know he's a leopard he's a leopard it's just it's very intriguing just like I, harold I lloyd him, just like harold lloyd and it's you know there's a lot of people that type joan crawford obviously is also a massive freckles myrna loy you never get to see anyone's real skin. But uh, Westmore, always a good time. I think Doris has better makeup in this than like virtually any other movie she made. The ones that he works on because he understands her um, her coloring so well. The corals are so good. And I don't think you ever see Doris with coral lips and like anything else. But, you know, 
not everyone can be a Westmore, I guess. Uh, Todd, you wanted to make a, a note, I believe, while we were watching about um, some potential copyright infringement. Yeah, I believe I have discovered that um, ABBA got away with completely ripping off the song It's Magic. It's Magic sounds exactly like The Winner Takes It All by ABBA, and it blew my mind, and I'm going to stick a comparison here because I'm right about this. And they got away with it, and I have cracked the case, and uh, I don't know who I'm going to sue or what, but I'm going to make some money. It's going to be good. Um, yeah, yeah, that's they're the same song. Jack Carson wishes he could crack a case. Like yeah, that. hey, who should exactly. be the private eye now? Exactly. I mean, if we if we can't get any ad sponsors, we're just going to have to get funding through litigation. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, is now an appropriate time to talk about your sad anecdote, Candace, or are we? Okay, it's probably going to clash totally with the rest of the episode. So I'm just going to allude to it briefly. But um, Janice Page, who is still with us, by the way, a couple of years ago wrote a guest column for the Hollywood Reporter where she talks about her own experience in the mid-1940s with something adjacent to the Me Too movement. Um, you can look into it if, if you so desire. But um, she doesn't name in her column the director who set her up and assured her that, you know, going out on a date with his friend would be fine. You know, uh, he would personally guarantee her safety, etc. But it doesn't take, again, a fucking rocket scientist to figure out. It's obviously Frederick de Cordova, who was very close friends with um, Bloomingdale. Anyway, whatever. So a couple of different things here. Bloomingdale, piece of shit. Uh, Betsy Bloomingdale, also a piece of shit. Best friends of the Reagans. Nancy's Reagans, like, buddy there. Um, and I, I found one thing where it was talking about some fucking dinner party. And it was like, Ronald Reagan and Frederick de Cordova and fucking Kirk Douglas and uh, Bloomingdale. And I'm like, there's something that these men all seem to have in common and if birds of a feather, that's all I'm going to say, you know, whatever, you're the company you keep. The Reagans were shit. They were shit. Anyway, the funny thing about De Cordova was that, um, do you guys know about the thing that happened with Johnny Carson? No. So De Cordova was, um, worked on The Tonight Show. And he, well, basically, he, he directed The Tonight Show. And famously, when Johnny Carson left The Tonight Show and retired, and Jay Leno came on, uh, De Cordova was stripped of his responsibilities, basically shoved in a shitty little office somewhere at NBC, and according to his widow, paid like $500 a week. And it was humiliating and all this stuff. But what she didn't know was that this wasn't just because the studio didn't need him anymore because he'd been passed over with the new era of The Tonight Show. It was because Johnny Carson hated her husband. Because what happened was in 1991, Carson's son died 
in an accident. His son was a wildlife photographer. And about a month after he died, Carson went through a whole episode and then decided to allot the last couple moments, uh, minutes of the episode to talking about his son. And Carson was not somebody who was like ever like very like personal or like really like raw on air. Carson was always like very much like about the guest. And De Cordova gave him the uh, wrap it up Yikes. signal. Woof. And woof. That was the end. That was the end of his career. So I thought that was really interesting. I, I kind of like the idea that here's somebody who, again, literally sets up a young, a 22-year-old actress to be to be raped by his friend. You know, he obviously knows what's going to happen that night. And then he ends up basically in disgrace at the studio, you know, at the, at the network that he helped build effectively because he's a fucking asshole. And I was just so mad about this. And I was reading the Vanity Fair article about his wife and it's like they're made – her husband died of a heart attack, like, in the house, and the maid didn't bring it up to De Cordova's widow because she was so afraid of her. And, like, this is meant to be, like, the sad, like, end of the, like, they call her, you know, like, this kind of, like, doyen of, you know, Hollywood society and of Beverly Hills culture. And it's just, like, this is just such a cesspool. And it's, like, so horrible, like, reading the article and seeing, like, you know, Michelle Phillips or whomever be like, oh, she was such an interesting, like gracious woman yeah like yeah she was mean and hypercritical and like really demanding but also like she was a good person anyway it's just like i hate it was one of those things that leaves you such a bad taste in your mouth for hollywood but um in her hollywood reporter column about what happened to her janice page specifically mentions like the hypocrisy of marriage between the bloomingdales and how betsy bloomingdale basically acted as a shield for her lecherous piece of shit husband by granting him kind of like this like class and elegance that he didn't possess himself so that he could effectively use it to prey on girls. Fury between the lines. And I'm just so mad. I'm just so mad. And in fact, she was like best friends with Nancy Reagan. And you can just tell from the story that Janice Page tells her that she was not the only girl this ever happened to. I mean, he literally tries to block her with his car while she's running down the street. You know. But it's just so frustrating when you read this. And it's like, oh, right. Because they all protect each other and stand up for each other. And anyway, the idea of a dinner party with fucking Kirk Douglas, Ronald Reagan, uh, Frederick de Cordoba, and fucking... Bloomingdale is like my idea of hell on earth. It's keeping on theme with like everyone who was friends with Reagan having this horrible kind of malevolence. And that's why it's like when you come across one and you're like, why don't I like this person? It's like a, a dog reacting to something <laughs> that you can't see in the room. That's what it's like. People are like, oh, you know, but he, he did good things for the country. He didn't. He did not do a single good thing for the country. He has made it what it is today. And it's just like, I don't know how he was such a popular president for as long as he was, especially after he started going crazy. Like, that is a testament to how broken that country is. Yeah. No offense. No, well, no, it's Full true. Offense. It's it's horrible. It's really horrible. And it goes back to, you know, people only care about what you can do for them in the moment. And again, it goes also back to the idea that you, you are the company you keep. Like, I, I'm tired sometimes, you know, of when people pretend that just because somebody maintains a close relationship with someone, they're not in any way culpable for what they, you know, it's like, they're not your family. Just like all these people, like, you weren't like born into the um, family. hanging out with fucking Epstein, being like, oh, well, I just hung out with him once. Okay, Bill Gates, um, once is more than enough to be hanging out with this fucking pedophile. It's just so fucked. It's just so fucked. And it's like, again, to quote Reagan, I mean, to quote Reagan, <laughs> to quote Dana in like 1968 or whatever. <laughs> 
when his son was like showed him a picture of Reagan's like the governor's mansion in Life magazine and was like, why does he have a jockey statue out on the lawn, which is like a like a black caricature? And Dana was just like, because he's a racist. <laughs> <laughs> because you can't trust anybody. You can't even trust Dana. He punched a woman in the face once. But yeah, no, um, whatever. But Bloom, but anyway, I just, I'm so, I, I anyway, Frederick Dorcovello deserved everything he got. He deserved it. Um, he deserved Carson freezing him out. He deserved dying with no money. Yeah, like literally the Vanity Fair article is like trying to make you feel bad about the fact that this fucking bitch ended up with no money. And it's like, I'm sorry, but I don't care. Controversial statement, but I don't care. And Alfred Bloomingdale was a piece of shit. He's rotting in hell. And I hope his death was long and drawn out and miserable. And that's how I feel about anyone who does a rape. I think, yeah, that's the line on this podcast. <laughs> oh, one other thing I wanted to talk about real quickly is, um, I was going to say how much we hate Jack Carson, but that's been the whole episode. I don't even remember what I wanted to say specifically. That's fine. Just the fact he's alive. Well, he's not. Well, he's not. He's not anymore, but he was at one point. I think. What? Oh, you think Jack Carson's still around? Say, like, no. <laughs> <laughs> he's just in the fucking cryo chamber, like, waiting. Jack Carson has um, risen from the grave. No, I. I <laughs> I heard what you said about me. It wasn't cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I was just going to say that, like, it was interesting reading the initial responses. Like, obviously, Bosley Crowther, um, fucking idiot, um, continued to have opinions on things and was like, you know, didn't like Doris Day and thought, that, you know, she wouldn't have a future. And it's like, well, joke's on you, dickhead. Um, I just think it's interesting to see Doris Day at this point of her career where she hadn't really established herself on screen as like obviously it's her first role but like hadn't established that um Doris Day character which we talked in length about in um episode two of this podcast like you know the working girl who's got a job she's wisecracking um really honest and genuine person like that hadn't been constructed yet um so it's interesting seeing her without that surrounding her and I think that it's interesting to see the sets in this, even if they don't make sense. Um, it's an, an interesting oddity um, to see. I don't know if a lot of the costuming made sense. I don't think it did. I'm just very glad we didn't have to see them in short shorts. But, like, for what it is, there are better Doris Day movies that you could watch. And you could watch literally any other movie that didn't have Jack Carson in it, and it would be an improvement. If you want to see Oscar Levant in a movie, uh, he's in other movies. Just don't watch any of the ones that he's in. Um, uh, and yeah, I guess this movie, avoid it. Best avoided. You know what I'll say is I'm a little heated now. And uh, I just think it's really cool that uh, Doris Day lived many, many years to a very ripe old age. Janice Page is still with us at the time of recording. She is quite elderly. Hopefully we are not cursing her. But, uh, you know, those two women in this movie greatly outlived a lot of the mediocre to gross to, in some cases, evil men we have discussed tonight. And I think that's nice. So, yeah, I think yeah. that is very nice. Honestly, this film would have been much improved if it was just Doris and Janice going on a cruise <laughs> yeah. together. Just having fun in the sun. Yeah, sure, Saka could be there too. And they could all do the wardrobe montages. You know, Walking on Sunshine is playing. They're on the beach in Rio. Maybe Saka's in like 
a speedo. <laughs> I mean, whatever he wants to do. Uh, I think that would have been a vastly better movie. It's a shame that it didn't happen. I guess not everyone can be as visionary as me. <laughs> I, all I have to say is that Janice has the most amazing, like, baby pink, like, satin dressing gown. And I'm obsessed with it. There's and... a lot of great dressing gowns in this movie. Yeah. Like, the one that Doris wears that's, like, that has the cutout over the That the thing's waist, crazy. Um, but it has, has, like, the big billowing sleeves and all the, the leisure wear is very good. So I'm assuming that was done by the same designer. Yeah. And all the other women in the movie, if you look in the background, are dressed in, like, grays and greens and browns. Like, it's really interesting, you know, how they bring... um, They really use Technicolor to bring that to the forefront. I think it's a really interesting, really competent studio musical... Uh, Michael Curtiz probably didn't want to do it. So, you know, sorry. Sorry that you make Mildred Pierce and then, you know, a couple years later you're making Romance on the High Seas. (laughs) That's kind of just what happens. And you got to fucking work with Jack Carson again. So, sorry to Michael Curtiz, too. Sorry to this man. Sorry to this man. (laughs) Okay, well, I guess we give us our customary rating. Uh, Candace, Mm -hmm. how many cigarettes smoked by Oscar event would you give this movie? Out of ten. Uh... I would give it six point like three six and a and a butt is what I would give it because it's pretty to look at except for when Jack Carson or Don DeFore are on screen and um I'm mostly hype about getting to see Doris and especially Doris as as a young lady um looking as beautiful and effervescent as ever sounding as wonderful as ever being as wonderful as ever and also uh, some good little brief appearances from some of those wonderful character actors of yore um todd how many jack carson horrible um attempts at an accent would you give this out of a uh brick why brick why big daddy oh brick thank you uh out of uh five cat on a hot tin roofs would you give this out of five out of five cat on a hot out tin roof. Out of five roofs, cat on a hot tin roofs. Um, yeah, I guess like three. Cats on a hot oh, tin roof. Oh, no, three's too high. Maybe, man, it's hard when you're giving me that scale. I guess, yeah, I'll stick with three because it is, like you said, very pretty. I like I like Doris and Technicolor. Um, I like a couple of the Sakal jokes. But yeah, Jack Carson's just hard to deal with. Uh, Amelia, how many ominous gunshots at the end of Jack Carson's phone line would you give this movie out of ten? Uh, it's getting getting a four and a half out of ten for me. <laughs> Brutal. Um, it's just it's just too much Jack Carson for one stomach. All the points that I've given directly to Doris. She is the only saving grace of this movie. Um, yeah, some of the sets are very interesting and the technical is nice and for the oddity that it is, the costuming is interesting, but like, that's it. doesn't even have like good musical numbers going for it. So yeah, I'm going to be brutal. I mean, I'm sure the audience is shocked because traditionally I'm always giving the lowest scores. So, I mean, I just, I guess I'm hard to please. You don't even like movies. (laughs) Yeah. I don't. We haven't addressed this, but <laughs> the only movies Amelia's seen are the movies that we've discussed on this podcast. She was very new to movies <laughs> when we began. To quote Garth Marenghi, I'm the only writer who's written more books than they have read, <laughs> but it's me with movies. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm one of the few people you'll meet who've written more books than they've read. Um, no, I, I this is just not my bag, baby. Someone's got to keep the ghost of Jack Carson in line. That's your job. Yep. I wonder if he's bones. <laughs> I wonder if he's in hell. Can you be a ghost if you're also in hell? Is that a demon? Is that what a demon is? <laughs> if you're a ghost, he's also in hell. I don't know why Jack Carson's in hell. He just is, <laughs> just objectively speaking. I don't believe in heaven if Jack Carson is there. <laughs> I remember when, like, a million years ago, I got an anonymous Tumblr ass with somebody saying that, like, their grandfather went to punch Jack Carson in the face in a bar. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that was true. Remember a million years ago when we were talking about Jack Carson and Rita threatened to gag me with a handball? <laughs> I forgot about that. Okay, so apparently Jack Carson is in Forest Lawn. I thought you were going to say apparently Jack Carson is in hell. <laughs> I was like, you don't need to tell me that. I know it. Hey Siri, is Jack Carson in hell? <laughs> oh fuck, mine turned on. Okay, well we'll listen to it. I don't know how to respond to that. Okay. <laughs> well, what good are you for then, huh? Hey Siri, is Jack Carson in hell? I found this on the web. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the Google results for It's a Great Feeling, Roughly Speaking, 1945. Well, he's cremated. Oh, so he's the opposite of Bones. He's the opposite of Bones. I.L. Diamond graduated from Columbia in 1941. What? He looks so old. Was he an adult All student? All the time. No, he was 21 he's years a old. Age student. He was born in 1920. <laughs> I thought what he was so fuck? much older than that. <laughs> That's crazy. That's insane. I thought he was like Billy Wilder's age. <laughs> no, that means he was only 37 when he started working with Wilder. That's really fucked up. Why did he look like shit? <laughs> He had fucking Stanley Tucci's. <laughs> Siri, why did... did I... I didn't get that. Could you try again? No. No, I'm sorry, Siri. I'm sorry for bothering you. I don't understand. Oh, no, I'm sorry, Siri. I'm sorry for bothering you. But I could search the web for it. No, thank you, Siri. Okay. You've done your duty, Siri. I'm not sure I understand. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, thank you all for listening. As always, uh, rate and review us wherever you listen to this podcast. Let us know what you thought. Um, you can talk to us via our social channels at BasketPod, at Instagram, and on Twitter. Let us know how much you hate Jack Carson. Don't say you made us. You, we made you cry because you're Don DeFore's child. I don't want to see that. That would make me sad. Yeah, Don DeFore's offspring do not interact. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Send us a message asking us to cover a film that you'd like us to cover, and we'll consider it. We do operate on a schedule such that um, if you were to send in a suggestion that we liked, you probably still wouldn't hear the episode for about six months. So. Keep your expectations realistic on that front. So start sending in some recommendations for St. Patrick's Day. I was thinking uh, Leprechaun 4 in space. Um, <laughs> it's not even Leprechaun 4 in space. Is it Leprechaun 4 in space or is Leprechaun 4 Leprechaun in the hood? Siri. I think Leprechaun 3 is in the hood. No, Leprechaun 3 is in Vegas. Siri, uh, which Leprechaun movie <laughs> is it the one where you went to space? Okay. I created a note. <laughs> Look up 3's in Vegas. Siri, which Leprechaun movie is it the world? <laughs> Siri thinks I had a stroke. Siri, what is the subtitle of Leprechaun 4? Here's what I found. Leprechaun 4 in space. Okay, well, thanks for fucking up, Siri. <laughs> anyway, Leprechaun 4, uh, 
one of those shitty musicals that maybe takes place like with some Irish shit, like, you know, one of the Fox ones, like Sweet Rosie O'Grady or something else that's about Ireland or uh, The Luck of the Irish, the Disney Channel original movie, anything like that we could talk about. Um, well, I'll just say everybody look forward to the next few months because we're going to try and get into spooky season early. Um, so get ready to get scared. And yeah, I guess that's it. Everybody stay safe. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. Uh, don't be an asshole to people just doing their job. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. Jack Carson's ghost. Uh, we don't want to hear from you. Bye. We're going to get haunted. He's possessed. Okay. Bye-bye. Jack Carson's fucking Canadian. Okay, they moved to they moved to Milwaukee in 1914. So he's he's Canadian by birth. Do you think he would have said SZ or SZ? You know, I don't know. He was four years old when they moved to Milwaukee, so I'm guessing. <laughs> the only problem though is that he would be raised by Canadians. So why does his brother look like Liberace? Please Google uh, Robert Carson, please. <laughs> okay. What am I going to see? Also, there's a picture of him and, and their mom at Jack Carson's funeral, and their mom looks like Edward G. Robinson, so you have to look at that, too. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my God. Why does he look like oh, no, that? Mom. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, dear. And then uh, it's also, there's a related photo, which is a photo from Clark Gable's funeral, and um, in the picture, it's got, like, it's got Gable's widow and... Um, the chaplain and blah 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 and then in the 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 chaplain uh by which i mean like of the chaplain who conducted the ceremony not like charlie chaplain and then behind him is robert taylor and robert taylor's got like the most fucked up like harlow pencil brows i've ever seen in my life (laughs) just like super overplucked i'm i'm tired of this this is making me angry um (laughs) 